0: As we remain standing, let us pray. Lord Jesus, as you abide with us this evening, may we abide with you. And as we abide, may we know the fullness of your joy for the honor and glory of your name. Amen. It's such a joy for me and my wife, Alicia, to be with you this evening at the institution of your new rector David and I served together at Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, where we forged a deep and really abiding friendship. Langley and David and David Jr., Mary Camden and Bennett, are all very dear to us as well. I'm so thankful to you all, the people of Holy Cross, for bringing these dear friends of ours that much closer to Raleigh. Thank you. So this evening I want to ask a question that may feel a little bit out of place in a service like this, but it's one that I think is nonetheless surprisingly relevant. And the question is this, where do we find our joy? Where do we find our joy? It's a question that resonates with the season of Advent in which we find ourselves, And it leads to a question that should probably be asked more often of a minister and his congregation, which is, where will you find your joy together? We're in the midst of a season of expectant joy. In ten short days, we will be singing together, Joy to the World, the Lord has Come. We'll read the Christmas story in Luke 2, and we'll hear the angels proclaim to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all people. Twelve days later, we'll celebrate the visit of the Magi who rejoice exceedingly with great joy at the sign of the star when it reappears over Bethlehem. The answer to the question, where do we find our joy is of course in Jesus Christ. Whenever Alicia or I ask our kids a question of any kind of spiritual significance whatsoever, they automatically reply in unison, God, Jesus, the Bible. (laughs) This is pastor's children. Now, it's true that most questions of a spiritual nature can be answered by one of those replies. But what does it mean? What does it mean that our joy is found in Jesus? And how might this shape our life together? Well, our gospel reading from John 15 is a help in answering these questions. It's the night before his crucifixion. And Jesus has gathered his closest friends for Passover dinner. In a few short hours, he'll be weeping, sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll be wrestling with God the Father. The next day will be filled with torture, public humiliation, and ultimately death. But here's Jesus talking about joy. Listen again to his words in verses 9 to 13. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So where do we find our joy? We find our joy in abiding, obeying, and laying down our lives for those we love. So Jesus invites his disciples to abide in his love. To abide means to hold fast, to rest in, to trust. To abide somewhere means to settle in and make your home there. In the opening lines of this chapter, Jesus has made clear that abiding also means receiving nourishment, Like a branch on a vine bearing grapes. This is what Jesus invites us to do. To make our home in his love. To hold fast to it. To take nourishment from it. To find rest in it. Now for a group of young men used to wandering the roads of Galilee and Judea with Jesus. This must have sounded just a little bit passive. Especially as a set of final instructions But as anyone can tell you who has truly sought to abide in the love of Jesus, this work is far from passive. It doesn't come naturally, and it must be pursued relentlessly because it militates against our nature as creatures who are always looking to prove ourselves and to demonstrate our worth on our own. To abide in Christ's love is to receive that love as a gift, It should come as no surprise that the words for grace, gift, and joy, in Greek, they derive from a single verb. kairo to rejoice, gives us the noun kara, which is joy, and later, the noun charis, which is grace. So we experience joy as a gift of grace as we receive and abide in the love of Christ. This simple truth has profound implications for a minister and for his people. David, your primary task as a rector will be to abide in the love of Jesus and to make your home with him, to find your rest in him, to draw your nourishment from him. This personal work of abiding, it must come before the all-important work of leading this congregation to abide. You will never be able to do the latter if you do not do the former. Of course, the latter work of leading this congregation to abide in the love of Jesus will be central to your work as rector. And this will mean reminding them, reminding you all again and again and again and again of the gospel of grace, that God of his own initiative, And out of the abundance of his love came searching for us in the midst of our brokenness to rescue us from sin and death. If you abide in Christ's love, the gospel that you preach will remain the gospel of grace. And this congregation will know the joy of unconditional love. So the first step to experiencing joy, the joy of Jesus is to abide in his love. The second is to obey his word. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says in verse 10, you'll abide in my love and ultimately experience his joy. Joy is a gift, but it's also the fruit of discipline. It's what we experience as we conform our lives to the life and to the will of God himself. This means that joy isn't merely an emotion or a feeling. Joy is a way of being. this may come as a surprise. We tend to think of joy as exuberant or ecstatic experience, like the feeling of a last-minute field goal in a championship game. But joy, I think, can be far more mundane. It often comes in small doses as the fruit of daily obedience. Jesus prays that our joy may be full in verse 11. And I don't think that Jesus simply means that we'll have an abundance of joy, but that we will experience a sense of fullness or fulfillment. As we conform our actions and thus our lives to the perfect will of God, we we live the lives that God intended for us, and thus we experience fulfillment. That's our joy. And we won't know the absolute and complete joy of Jesus until we greet him in the new creation. But we can experience an increasingly fulfilling joy here and now as we abide in his love and as we obey his commands. When we truly understand this, that obedience leads to joy, it actually reshapes our sense of motivation. So many of us, I imagine, are motivated to obey God by a sense of duty or obligation we want to honor him for who he is for what he's done for us but Jesus sees obedience as more than this much more than this because it's a path to joy it's a path to joy and our longing for joy motivates us to obey so why did Jesus endure the shame and the agony of the cross he did this out of obedience to God the father for sure But was it just a sense of duty that motivated him? I think we often think of Jesus as as a brave soldier sent on a fatal mission. He's determined, he's strong, he's stoic, but not joyful. But that is not the Jesus of the New Testament. The author of Hebrews puts it well when he writes in chapter 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus endured the limitations of our humanity, the shame of public ridicule, and the agony of the cross because of the joy that he found in saving us from sin. Jesus found joy through obedience, and he invites us to do the same. David, if you are to lead this congregation to joy, you will need to hold them to the high standards of God's word. You will need to expect obedient faithfulness to scripture. And this means that you'll be held to those high standards as well. It's hard work. People don't generally like being told what to do. I'm sure you all are no different from anyone else in the world. But you'll be helped by remembering that obedience isn't merely one's duty to God. It is the source of one's joy in Christ. It's for our good that we walk in his ways. As you call this congregation to obedience, David, you're actually leading them into joy. So the first step to experiencing the joy of Jesus together as a congregation is to abide in his love. The second is to obey his word. And the third and final step is to lay down your lives for those whom you love. Having explained that his goal for them is joy, Jesus says to his disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It is simply astonishing that Jesus can talk about joy in the face of death. Especially a death that's both horrendous and completely unjust. Jesus knows joy in the midst of death, I think, for two reasons. First, because his death has a purpose, which is the redemption of sinners. Second, because he knows that death will not and cannot get the last word. We love sacrificially because Jesus loves sacrificially. And our self-giving love for others, it has a purpose. It points them to the sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus. Just as Jesus found joy in giving his life for ours, so we find joy as we give our lives for others. I think you probably know this from experience, don't you? When do you feel you're at your best When do you feel most fulfilled? Well, it's when you have loved sacrificially and seen in the eyes of the one you love that they understand what you've done. That is not the way of the world around us. The world around us says we have to protect ourselves at all costs. But you know, self-protection never leads to joy. It may lead to a sense of security, But that security, it only serves as a cloak to hide a life of fear where death gets the final word. We can't protect that over which we have no control, our lives. We can, however, give them away sacrificially in love because we know that death does not get the last word. And by doing so, giving our lives away in love for those around us, we experience the joy of Christ David so much of your work will consist of self-sacrificial love and most of this will remain completely hidden from view. That's the duty of a rector to love like Jesus. It's the duty of a rector's whole family and his wife. Self-sacrificial love. It's just not it's not just you on the line, it's your family together. People won't see the wounds that you carry, but they will learn to love by watching how you love. To those of you who are members here, one of the greatest ways that you can love your new rector will, by, will be by loving one another <laughs> sacrificially. <clears throat> so often, this, she's been in church. <laughs> So often, people in churches bring the needs of others to the minister because they are afraid or unwilling to share the burden themselves. And what a minister wants more than just about anything is for his people to love each other sacrificially and by doing so to experience the joy of Jesus. So where will you find your joy in life and ministry together? Well, joy will come through abiding in God's love, making your home there, rejoicing in your salvation. Joy will also come through the discipline of obedience, through lives increasingly conformed to the will of God, which is the only way we experience true fulfillment as human beings. Finally, joy will come through laying down your lives for each other, sacrificing personal security and temporary happiness for the sake of seeing the joy of Christ in others. So what does joy have to do with the institution of a rector? It's a reminder of the ultimate goal of your life together. It's also the desire of our Lord and Savior. He wants us to experience his joy here, now, and for eternity. Amen.